Hello, and welcome to this month's episode of the CF Armed Forces podcast with me, your host, James Clark. On this month's podcast, we hear from the contributors to the CF Armed Forces Policy Pamphlet 2021 as they discuss their submissions and some of the wider defence issues currently facing the UK. Hello, and welcome to the CF Armed Forces Discussion Panel at Conservative Spring Conference. My name is James Clark, and I'm the Executive Director of CF Armed Forces, and I'll be chairing this event today. As a brief introduction, CF Armed Forces was started in 2018 with three main goals. To provide a space for veterans, those in the military, and Conservative members and the public to meet and discuss Conservative politics and defence. To facilitate those people having their voices heard by MPs and ministers, and to encourage people with a forces background or ethos to get involved in politics. As part of the second of these goals, this year we're releasing our first policy pamphlet, which I'm really excited about. It contains analysis and ideas from across our friends and membership network. And the forward is kindly being contributed by the Secretary of State for Defence, Ben Wallace MP. Once finalised, the pamphlet will be sent to Conservative MPs and we hope it sparks debate and contributes to ongoing defence policy development. I am delighted to chair this panel and over the course of about 40 minutes, our contributors will offer a sneak peek about what they've identified and suggested. If you have any questions, please type them into the system. And if there's any time at the end, we'll raise them with the panel. I really hope you enjoy. And without further ado, I'll now hand over to our first panelist, Natasha. In the National Security Law Programme at Columbia Law School in New York. And I'm specifically interested in cyber regulation and the future challenges of cyber warfare, which are highlighted in the integrated review of security defense development and foreign policy published this month, but I've been asked to contribute specifically on issues pertaining to international criminal law, and in particular, the International Criminal Court and what this may mean going forward, specifically for the British Armed Forces. For those of you who are not familiar with it, there are four categories of crime, which are within the jurisdiction of the International Criminal Court, the crime of genocide, war crimes, crimes against humanity, and the crime of aggression. Crucially, the court only has jurisdiction over territory of states that are parties to the court and the Rome Statute, and only where the responsible state is either unwilling or unable to investigate and take proceedings itself. Now, many of you in the audience will no doubt be aware that in December 2020, the prosecutor of the ICC closed the preliminary examination into claims that British troops committed war crimes in Iraq between 2008, uh, 2003 and 2008. That examination had originally been terminated in 2006. It was reopened in 2014, and the prosecutors warned that it may be reopened again. And it is in that context that developments in the last few months I believe are of particular significance for the interests of the UK because they demonstrate that the court has shifted substantially in its approach to the rule of law and it, in its role in international criminal justice. Last month, we saw an extraordinarily controversial ruling by Pre-Trial Chamber One 
determining in essence that the court had jurisdiction with respect to its investigation of the state of Israel, a non-state party. Seven states parties had protested formally with submissions to the court before the ruling. The UK did nothing. Since the ruling, there's been damning condemnation both from states parties and non-states parties, uh, for example, the United States. Again, the UK has done nothing. Now the ruling was by a majority and the presiding judge, Judge Kovacs, dissented. He did not hold back in his criticism, saying, I find neither the majority's approach nor its reasoning appropriate in answering the question before this chamber. And in my view, they have no legal basis in the Rome statute and even less so in public international law. Those were the words of one of the judges on a ruling that has revolutionary effects in terms of the direction of the court, setting precedents that put British armed forces personnel in jeopardy and at risk of prosecution for political reasons. Now, jurisdiction is key. It's what separates a legal institution from a merely political one. And this ruling is the most potent example of the court overturning the rule of law, throwing international law out of the window. Now, I think it's clear that the court is taking this approach in great part due to its abysmal record on criminal justice. Already 10 years ago, it was being called out as a, a failed institution for spending nearly a billion US dollars and taking a decade to deliver its first judgment. But this politicization of the court is characterized by the unfortunate reality that the ICC is seeking to go after human rights respecting democracies and even non-state parties and armed forces that uphold the principles of international humanitarian law rather than tackle the worst human rights violators of the modern era. And this is where the institution must be held to account by the UK, one of the principal funders. In July 2019, then Foreign Secretary Jeremy Hunt gave a statement explaining that the UK has long provided political, financial and practical support to the ICC. We are one of the largest financial contributors to the court, contributing £9.7 million in 2018. The UK therefore has a crucial role to play in ensuring that the court keeps to its original objects. And there is an urgent need for joined up thinking on the ICC, a recognition of the threat to British armed service personnel, in particular in light of the overseas operations, service personnel and veterans bill, and the danger posed to the UK's ongoing efforts to effectively combat terrorism. I'm grateful to Conservative Friends of the Armed Forces for the invitation. I look forward to continuing the discussion on these important and pressing issues. Natasha, thank you so much. Absolutely fascinating. Um, we're going to move on now to Chris. Chris was one of our um, competition winners. So, uh, uh, you know, crack on, Chris. Thank you very much. Uh, yes, my name's Chris Williams. Uh, I've followed the work of Conservative Friends of the Armed Forces for some time now. Uh, whilst I work in the private sector outside of defence, I've had a very close interest um, in it uh, since my university days. So the piece I put forward um, is based around whether Britain has a conventional non-nuclear deterrent. Now, deterrence can be done in two ways, uh, either threatening the failure of an attack or threatening that it will invite retaliation, or ideally both. And there will be types of significant non-nuclear attack uh, 
where an enemy would calculate that Britain would not respond with nuclear weapons, either due to international norms uh, or fear that it would invite a nuclear counter response. So in these sorts of cases, what else can Britain deter with? So I proposed a scenario of a serious confrontation on the NATO-Russia border. Uh, UK forces are preparing to deploy, but NATO, including America in this case, is slow to respond. And Russia is looking for a NATO country to knock out of the conflict to deter others, and it chooses Britain. So it threatens a significant non-nuclear strike on British infrastructure, so government, energy, drinking water, food distribution and the economy, all via long-range modern standoff missile attacks and cyber attacks, unless Britain withdraws from the confrontation. And now cyber capability is quite difficult to gauge at the moment due to secrecy, uh, but it seemed pretty clear that Britain would struggle to defend against a significant standoff missile attack or to credibly threaten a response in kind without going nuclear. So I wanted options to remedy this, and I wanted them to be options that mostly involve platforms or systems that the UK already operates. Um, and that the armed forces could use for other purposes as well, not just this particular scenario. Uh, in defeating a mass modern standoff missile attack, the UK currently relies on limited available Type 45 destroyers, anti-submarine assets, and the fairly short-range Sky Sabre air defence system, which is just starting to come in. However, uh, the Royal Navy's long-range Aster 30 missile can also equip a land-based system, which is imaginatively called SAMP slash T. I think we could come up with a better name if it comes into British service, but uh, it can engage targets at much longer distances uh, and higher speeds than Skysaber. So this could protect targets within the UK much more effectively, uh, but also support a deployed force in other scenarios. In threatening non-nuclear retaliation, uh, the UK would be limited to quite small-scale missile attacks from submarines and fighters, and possibly small-scale bombing attacks from um, a carrier strike group. Targets that Russia values and therefore doesn't wish to see damaged are pretty plentiful, um, particularly its ability to wage war and to enforce its regime, if only we were able to threaten them significantly. But again, there are options among existing platforms. Uh, the £1 billion Type 45 destroyers were designed with space for 16 cruise missiles that were never fitted, and the Type 26 frigates, when they arrive, uh, will have capacity as well. But for large, rapid deployment of cruise missiles, there could be a quick fix for Britain. Lockheed Martin have recently demonstrated how a C-17 cargo aircraft can act as a cruise missile carrier, embarking a roll-on roll-off system for releasing standoff missiles in the air. And Airbus have explored um, a similar idea for the A400M Atlas. And these are both aircraft that the RAF operates already. So with this, Britain could essentially acquire a part-time budget bomber force operating at standoff ranges at short notice, and perhaps without having to buy any new aircraft. And this would certainly improve the UK's non-nuclear retaliation options at limited cost uh, and provide a key standoff capability for other campaigns as well. So think back to the Syria uh, missile strikes for that. 
So in short, with relatively modest investment compared to many other defense investments made, um, Britain could develop um, existing systems and platforms that we already use to noticeably increase its credible non-nuclear deterrent. And these would benefit the UK, NATO, and uh, any other campaigns that the UK chooses to become involved in where standoff capability is needed. So that's a summary of the piece I put forward, but I'm very grateful to have had the opportunity to present the idea. So thank you very much. Chris, thank you so much. That was, uh, that was really interesting. And I found um, uh, your, um, your contribution um, particularly interesting. A lot of really good ideas, a lot of um, kit-orientated uh, stuff in there. So thank you so much. And we'll now move on to uh, Ben McLean. Brilliant. Uh, thank you, James. Um, so good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, my name is Ben McLean. I'm currently completing a degree apprenticeship in strategy and operations consulting based in London. Um, I predominantly focus on the public sector and I'm also studying for a degree in chartered management as part of my apprenticeship. Um, I must also add it, it really is a privilege to be part of a panel um, who are much more experienced and qualified um, than myself. So thank you very much for having me. Um, so I believe my proposal, which is titled uh, Utilising Gen Z to develop a conceptual edge within UK defence, really sits at the heart um, of current defence thinking. Most recently, of course, with the integrated review, um, but also with the likes of the integrated operating concept 2025. But really on a high level, this is about what's on the mind of all strategic defence thinkers and leaders. And that's meeting the threat, both from our current and future adversaries um, in order to protect our democracy, protect our allies and protect our shared interests as a nation. And while it would not have missed many of you um, that the threats facing our nation has changed over the recent years, something that has laboured um, in the integrated review, the primary enabler for us to meet that threat is the need for quality people within the industry. And even with these changes to the nature of the warfare, it can of course be argued that the requirement is always changing, whether that be um, transitioning kits, tactics, procedures to counter the insurgency in Afghanistan, or adapting our armed forces to operate in a time of Cold War from 1947, no matter how defence changes in the coming years, the one consistent need will be for skilled, innovative and creative people to meet those unpredictable requirements of the future. So linking this back to my proposal, there are three points that I'd like to discuss with you today. Firstly, it's no secret that, um, to anyone that, that warfare is becoming more complex. We are operating in new domains such as space and cyber. There's an increase in sub-threshold activity and electronic warfare is becoming more prominent, both from an offensive and defensive point of view. Because of this, it's more important than ever that defence has access to the right skills and is able to build those skills as well. My second point is that defence needs to offer more routes for Gen Z to work within the industry. This includes expanding the number of graduate and apprenticeship roles available, especially where this enables defence to develop these skills from the ground up and produce a sustainable pool of skilled personnel. Defence must also activate these positions and training schemes um, attractive to Gen Z, focusing on the needs of the younger generation um, rather than current practices. While I'm not suggesting that we fill up mod main building with bean bags and smoothie bars, it is important to consider if the culture of the workplace is suitable for the audience that we're trying to recruit. I also believe defence needs to be influencing the education system in order to make sure it is suitable for the technical skills required, both in the immediate and long-term future. Um, I think it's also important to add that I talk about more about how defence can do this within the proposal. Um, my third point is that not only will these changes benefit our, nation, our nation's security, but also our nation's prosperity. Defence has long been a true vehicle for social mobility in the UK, traditionally within the uniformed organisations, but also for the 140,000 people that the defence industry employs. Through supporting those in education, providing more opportunities for Gen Z to enter the working world, 
I believe that defence, enabled by this party's actions, can make a greater tangible impact to the lives of young people, all while delivering the skills that we need for the future. Opportunity sits at the heart of what this party stands for. I, for one, know firsthand how much of an impact schemes like, schemes like friendships can make. Over the last year and a half, I've been privileged to work and learn from some of the best minds in the industry while doing my friendship, and this has been enabled by this government. We must continue to build on these positives. Defence can also utilise its vast geographic footprint across the UK to make investments in the areas that need it most, and therefore supporting the levelling up agenda. So, to conclude, UK defence must continue to meet the threat, and it will only do this by having the right people. With Gen Z now entering the working world, more must be done in order to develop skills um, defence needs through influencing the education system, offering more routes into the industry, and work to make these positions more attractive to young people. And finally, on top of the benefit to defence, through the development of technical skills and more opportunities for young people, this government can continue to make a positive impact on lives across this country to build the next generation of leaders, all while developing the conceptual edge across defence. I would also like to take the opportunity to thank the Conservative Friends of the Armed Forces and, of course, their Executive Director, James Clark, for allowing me this excellent opportunity. And I'll pass back over to them. Thank you. Ben, um, you're very, very welcome. Um, I really enjoyed your, your contribution. Um, and I think, to be honest, you know, even those of us who aren't in Generation Z would appreciate a smoothie and a beanbag every now and then in a working environment. Um, uh, now on to a, a man who I'm sure um, wouldn't approve of, of smoothies and beanbags, um, uh, good friend, uh, Carl Hunter. Morning, James. It's so brilliant to be here. And uh, some of you, some of you know how I'm willing you on to succeed in your parliamentary careers. James, Ed, Natasha, you know, and, and I know I know some of you. And thank you so much, Chris and and uh, and Ben earlier. It's uh, it's a treat to be here and thank you. And I will I will merely, merely, merely do a terribly high level overview, really, of where I'm going, because you're all more talented than me. And uh, why, why should I descend into the abyss and compete? Broadly, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm approaching the integrated review very much from the naval and maritime perspectives. And there's a couple of fun facts. 96% of all the UK's physical trade comes in by ship uh, across the sea. Um, diversion for a moment on Suez Canal. Do look at a map of the Suez Canal and you'll see two tributaries. That ship is only blocked in one of them. And the reports that it's gonna take a week for those ships to transit around the Cape of Good Hope is untrue, it will take them an additional 35 days. The second fun fact, however, the second fun fact is that 97% of our entire internet is contained on the undersea inter, uh, cable network that provides our internet. And that's trillions of dollars of trade every day. The integrative review, the prime minister makes a super, superb um, job really of integrating our prosperity agenda, our economic interests alongside defence and security. And if it's true what I've just said, which it is, that 96% of global trade, 97% of the internet is undersea and on top of it, then it makes sense that you principally are moving towards what could be discerned as a naval strategy overall. And what does that consist of? That consists of two carrier strike groups, fifth generation aircraft carriers, fifth generation aircraft the only one of making the UK one of only two nations on earth with such capability, supported by two amphibious literal strike groups, forward positioned, one east of Suez in the Indo-Pacific where 50% of global trade will occur in the next 10 to 20 years, 
and, and the other littoral strike group based west of Suez in the Euro-Atlantic area. So where we, where we are going with that fleet is something of potency and lethality in the event that is required, able to compete in the environment that we talk about so much, but which I would contend we've always been in if you've looked at the proxy wars across Africa and Asia um, for the last 60 years before the, for the 50 years before the Cold War ended. And broadly confronting possibilities, possibly something of utter magnitude, which I'm not sure we really recognize. In a 550 ship Chinese Navy, a submarine fleet in the Asia region that is so dense that if you lined up every submarine and placed it across the Malaccan Straits, you could probably walk across the Malaccan Straits on their combined conning towers. And we have seven nuclear attack submarines against that piece. So my overall contention would be firstly to thank you to James for his incredible leadership of the Conservative uh, uh, Friends of the Armed Forces, to will you on in your political careers. And thirdly, just to be mindful that we have made a tremendous step in this integrated review from the, from the naval perspective, but that with seven nuclear attack submarines, it might be an idea to consider that element of the fleet expansion one day too. And thank you so much for this time. Carl, thank you for that. Um, you, you've sort of raced through what I've uh, I've been through myself already. It's quite a substantial paper on our, our naval assets and, and what the what the mission is. Um, and I appreciate your very your very kind words um, earlier. Um, now on to somebody who who won't be quite so uh, so so praiseworthy. Um, Ed uh, McGuinness, if you'd like to uh, to step up to the plate. Thanks so much, James. I hope uh, everyone can hear me. Thank you to the rest of the panelists. Um, and uh, Carl, thanks for your uh, kind words at the start of your comments. Um, so I wanted to talk today about improving interoperability, specifically with regards to organizational rather than technical interoperability. And what I mean by that is um, cultural interoperability rather than sort of making sure our bombs and bullets fit in the uh, the uh, chamber of other countries uh, weaponry or that our tanks can fit on on their uh, their tank transporters um, for example so I wanted to focus on on cultural and organizational interoperability and clearly it's self-evident that the world is becoming more integrated and smaller this is mostly driven by technology, I would argue, um, but there's still the element of people and relationships, which is so crucial in the military. And for organizations and institutions, it presents challenges, particularly when we, um, when we operate in externally facing roles. Um, with regards to technology, though, uh, the failure to interface correctly can mean systems not absorbing all the information that was sent, reshuffling critical data, and even deleting data entirely. And the effects of such errors can range from inefficiency through to catastrophe. This analysis also holds for interpersonal relationships as well. For institutions, particularly the military in this case, the degree to which it integrates well with other organizations is critical to its operational and strategic effectiveness. This is particularly true at senior levels where the military reaches out beyond its internal borders to contractors, civil servants, equipment manufacturers, to name but a few. My contribution to the, the policy paper discusses three key challenges 
to the military interfacing with external organizations. The first is cultural. The military and the values that drive its people are rightfully different to other institutions and private companies. The second is operational, which is arguably the same across you know, a lot of uh, industries, and that is processes are uh, both conceptual and practical are different in the military to other, to other organizations. And the third is the military is primarily a trust-based organization. Trust exists in all effective organizations, but the nature and extent of the bonds of trust in the military are unique compared to other organizations, given the role the military is asked to play in public life. And then I moved on to some recommendations uh, to remedy those challenges that, I, that I've just outlined uh, to improve the operational and strategic effectiveness of the military. There are many successful examples of positive outcomes from integration of the military with external organizations. However, I'm focusing on improving this capability moving forward. And uh, I outlined two key areas where we could achieve this. The first is exchange at junior intermediate levels. And this educates military personnel to the culture of external agencies and vice versa, building a foundation of trust and understanding. And the second is senior leadership best practice committees. So with the trust and understanding established at a foundational level, um, you can then build an efficient conceptual framework, which can be developed more easily by senior commanders and industry leaders to allow best practice in both private industry and the military to filter down through the organizations and corporate knowledge to be retained. And finally, and in conclusion, the, the results if implemented would be an improvement in interoperability, an increased level of trust and synergies between the military and organizations with whom it works alongside. And in conclusion, and what we're really trying to drive, drive home here, is that it will create an intellectually diverse leadership base within the armed forces, driving operational improvement, which is really the goal that we should be all focusing on. So I welcome any questions uh, after the final panelists, but um, thank you so much, James, for the opportunity. Thank you to the rest of the panelists and back to you. Hey, thank you. Um, that kind of uh, uh, sort of intellectual diversity in the, in the top echelons of um, all three uh, of our kind of armed forces is absolutely crucial if we're going to stay ahead of um, both state and non-state um, threat actors. Um, so thank you very much for that, Ed. Um, we will come on to Will, uh, William Hall now. Hi, hi, James. Hello, everybody. Thanks so much um, for some fascinating contributions so far. My name's uh, William Hall. I'm the policy lead here at Conservative Friends of the Armed Forces, and I'm also co-editing um, this policy pamphlet. Um, and I have to just quick, I'm gonna be quite brief because we, we're running out of time, but I'm just gonna quickly say um, the quality of submissions has been fantastic. I think this event and this policy pamphlet demonstrate that CFAF is really at the heart of the development of conservative thinking when it comes to defense matters. And that brings me on neatly to my submission, which is um, basically around the Armed Forces Covenant, which clearly is a cross-cutting um, issue um, around all the errors that our speakers have spoken about um, so far. Um, I think it's fair to say the Conservative Party is the most veteran-friendly party in UK politics, and that we are very much pushing forward um, the Armed Forces Covenant's um, interaction with all kinds of parts of the, of the state and provision of public services. 
For those that don't know, it's essentially a promise that's made that uh, has two main pillars to it. First of all, no disadvantage for current or former members of the armed forces or their families um, in terms of how they interact with the provision of public and commercial services. The second is special consideration. So in some cases, there is a, there's a requirement for consideration um, for those particularly who have been injured um, or bereaved. I'm going to be really cut to the chase on this. There are two things that I suggest we need to do. First of all, we need to continue the great push that's happened over the last couple of years. The setting up of the Office of Veterans Affairs, Johnny Mercer right at the centre of government, cracking on with this fantastic work. I think we need to go even further. I think we need to have a single um, unified team of special advisors and civil servants, the same way we deal with economic issues, at the heart of the Cabinet Office, pushing through uh, reforms to public services. So that's my first recommendation in, in my submission. And my second one relates to local authorities. I'm a former councillor, um, had the privilege of being on the cabinet for a few years uh, in my mid-20s, which shows how depressingly boring my mid-20s were. Um, but during that time, I was going around talking to councils left, right and centre, particularly about how they treat veterans. And it is absolutely true that the, um, the coverage of, of engagement and use of the covenant is very patchy across different local authorities. There are fantastic examples of best practice, all Conservative councils, of course, but there are areas where there isn't the, the community is invisible to the local authority. And anyone who's been a councillor will tell you it's local authorities that deliver the services that really make a difference to people's day to day lives. And so we need to improve that and ensure that areas that don't have enough uh, support for veterans in the armed forces community are doing so. So my second recommendation is that we bring in the Secretary of State has to uh, present a report annually to Parliament about the progress of the Armed Forces Covenant. I want to see councils having to do the same. So council leaders at their annual meeting would have to stand up and talk about what they had done in that year to support our fantastic Armed Forces community. So those are my main two recommendations. But I would just, before passing that to James, just say that this has been a huge pleasure to work on as a project. Our two competition winners you know, we didn't, we, uh, we never met these guys before, but, but they, 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 they sent in some fantastic essays, really cutting edge stuff. And we said, great, come in, come on our panel, come talk to us about this. Everyone on the panel today demonstrates that the future of the Conservative Party is bright for armed forces issues. And I think that it's a very exciting time to be involved in politics. And it's a great time to be here on this panel. Back to James in the studio. Well, I can't say it better than that. Um, Will, thank you so much for your submission and for your hard work on this. Um, I'm going to come to Ryan uh, Henson, who's our final uh, contributor uh, on the panel today. Um, but just a reminder to anyone who's watching in the audience, if you have a question or indeed if you have a policy idea that you can um, get down in, in sort of five minutes, um, why not contribute it? Um, please feed in. And we've already had a couple of questions, which we'll try and get to um, and, uh, as soon as I've finished talking. So, Ryan, over to you. Well, thanks very much, James, and uh, thank you to Will and to Conservative Friends of the Armed Forces. It's been said by every uh, panellist, I think, but it's it's a huge privilege to have been invited to make a contribution, uh, and you, you do a superb, superb job. Um, look, I come at this from the angle of international development. That's my day job. Um, I believe really passionately that Britain should be a force for good. Um, I believe it so much that I, I even put it on the, the banner um, behind me, uh, and I see aid and international development as a really powerful means by which the UK can do this. Um, the trick is, or the tricky part is, uh, when you think about aid and, and development, you, you think of charities and, and the left. And actually, um, it's not always the case. Defence 
and development, I really believe go hand in hand. And, um, and I say that, you know, as someone who passionately believes in development, but who's also uh, a working class card carrying member of this party who campaigned for leave. You know, I, I really believe you, you, can, you can do both. You don't have to be a sandal wearing lefty to believe in aid. And so um, the purpose of this essay for me was to try to really hammer home the link between defence and development. And, um, and I, I've had 2000 words in which to, to articulate it, but to summarize it, um, there are three key reasons for why I think this is so important. Number one is COVID. Um, I think the integrated review spells this out really well. The, the biggest threat to this country in the coming decade will not just be authoritar authoritarian actors and, and terrorism, it will be pandemics. Um, and as we've seen with Ebola and the way in which development experts and the armed forces work hand in hand to contain that. Um, I think uh, we need to ensure that defense and development are working together to prevent the next pandemic. Uh, number two is Russia and China, disinformation, propaganda. Um, if we don't shape the world around us, other nations will shape it for us. They're already doing it. Um, we, we can't do all diplomacy by dropping bombs. Um, development is a really good way by which we can do it. Um, and third, uh, what goes on overseas doesn't end overseas. It's a bit of a cliche, but it's so true. The Home Secretary's talked this week about um, measures to tackle people smuggling and migration crises, and that's absolutely right. But I think if we tackle problems at their source, we prevent the consequences of those problems from coming back. And that's something, again, uh, somewhere where development and defence can, can work so well. So what I'm calling for in my essay is the establishment of a joint humanitarian command a tri-service organization trained and equipped to be deployed at short notice in response to a global humanitarian or public health disaster for command and coordination purposes. Um, and there's a few thousand words or 2000 words to explain how that would work. But I'll finish by saying this, um, defense and development are integral to uh, the way the UK projects itself overseas. Um, and I think it's such an, incredible opportunity for us to make a tangible contribution, not just to the defence of the United Kingdom, which should always be our top priority, but also to our legacy as a generation. You know, we can leave the world in a better place. We have the means, we have the expertise, we're really good at this. Um, and I think we should integrate it and develop it even further. So I'll leave it there. Thank you so much, uh, Ryan. Um, and uh, I'm really interesting that you in your um, submission there's a there's a kind of tangible output um, that you know really could be initiated or instigated you know by uh, the MOD certainly looked at by you know special advisors policy advisors um, straight away and kind of get moving in that direction if if that's something that that they want to take on board. Um, I'm going to go to the first question that we've had now is from um, Gagan Mahindra MP um, so thanks for watching Gags. Um, and Gagan says, um, how can we make politicians and the general public better informed about defence policy? Because most don't have a defence background. Um, and actually, Gagan raises a really important point, which is that with a, a you know, in terms of the, the shrinking numbers, um, there are fewer and fewer people who in their daily lives encounter people who, who have a defence background um, or who are connected. Um, and I'm going to direct that, I think, to, um, to Carl and also uh, to Natasha. So I don't know if, um, Carl, perhaps you, you could... Um, you could sort of have a go at answering that one. Um, so wonderful to hear uh, 
welcome your MP and uh, I'm, I'm also willing him on success, James. But to, William, to William's earlier point, I found that really interesting because I didn't mention that we were one of the first, as a company, we, my company is a manufacturer, but heavily exporting, heavily scientific. Uh, but William, we, we were one of the first companies to sign the Armed Forces Covenant. And I've got a great example of that to answer um, your MP's point, James, which is that we, we found a, a former Royal Marine and over the, over the last few years, that man has now become our lead design engineer in a particular technology stream. So the answer to the question to me seems to be that you don't need to be defense aware to be defense sympathetic and understand that as you transition from military to, or naval to civil life, um, there's a moment of transition which people like James and Ed know, know abundant amounts about. So it just seems to me that we just need to make that societal connection between our shield and our main body, if you like, and to bridge the gap of both. And I think William's points were really pertinent to that. The Armed Forces Covenant is one way to do that, but we shouldn't see the military as a them and us uh, entity at all, because we're all part of a society that, as Ryan so brilliantly said earlier, we, we are as, as a we are really good at lots of things that we do, but because we're British, we're sometimes a little reticent in recognizing the wonder and the magic of us. And you can't remove, if you look at institutions as one of our national values, which I do, and I'm sure you all do too, then the military are a fundamental part of that. So I just think just a little, a little intellectual curiosity, a little spiritual jump to understand that they're not a foreign species, the military, they are just a part of who we are here and at overseas. And Tasha? I think Carl is absolutely right. I'd only add to it that um, we are dealing with a different set of circumstances to a few decades ago when there was a great deal more personal connection to the armed forces amongst the population generally um, and people's brother, cousin, uh, mother, father um, serving gave them a, a particular interest uh, in the well-being of the British Armed Forces. That is less and less the case, unfortunately. And so the priority has to be on making the Armed Forces personable to every uh, British citizen on the basis uh, that it is not a freestanding um, institution, but one intimately connected with every other aspect of uh, politics uh, and individuals' lives uh, that also have priorities. And one of the key ways of doing that, I think, is perhaps um, epitomized by the integrated review and many of the contributions we've had in highlighting the connections between defense policy, development, um, and all the other areas that uh, impact people's lives on a daily basis. I think we probably have to emphasize that even more so and re-establish that personal connection, that uh, interest and that prioritization of the British Armed Forces. Brilliant, thank you very much. Um, I think we've got time for one more question uh, from Anonymous. So thank you, Anonymous. Um, how important is the private sector and its difference in thinking in maintaining the defense of the realm? Um, so I think we're gonna go to, to Ed and then perhaps to Chris as well. Um, Ed, do you, wanna, do you wanna have a crack at that? Yeah, thanks, James. Um, and thank you for that question. Look, I mean, clearly we see at the moment with coronavirus, the dreaded C word, um, that the private sector 
and the public sector working together has been an incredible uh, effort and has really driven what will be our recovery from this huge crisis that the um, that the country has faced. And uh, you know, I touched a little bit on on my remarks about um, some of the flexibility that private sector can bring to, to thinking uh, and uh, some of the more outcomes focused uh, planning and processes that uh, that the military can bring and when you when you look at how the private sector and public sector interface and work together oftentimes you see in the media when it when it doesn't go well but I think at the minute we're seeing a real a real golden era of of that working particularly well, and I'll just finish by saying it's it's in uh, it's in moments of crisis when you cut back on on red tape and bureaucracy and allow um, public and private sector to interface more uh, more effectively and more efficiently and, and with uh, less friction, then that that you get results. But also, you do have to be mindful that the government is in place to ensure that it delivers effective public services. So there does need to be oversight. And, but, but I think we do need to remember this spirit and um, when we eventually emerge so we can be more resilient and uh, be more adaptable in future. Thanks, Ed. And um, I know that, you know, having had discussions with um, uh, Mark Menzies, MP, and um, uh, some of the uh, industry players, I know that Team Tempest is like a good example of this synergy between government and, um, you know, uh, MOD and trying to produce results, not just um, to provide kit for ourselves and and engineering and, and sort of intellectual capacity for ourselves, but also to export it around the world as part of that global Britain push. Um, Chris, um, have you, would you like to come in very briefly? Yes, sure. Thank you. Um, I, I think two points really I'd make. In, in Firstly, in a very broad sense, um, it is, of course, the private sector that will generate the revenue um, for us to be able to afford um, very effective armed forces. So in a more general sense, um, having the most dynamic and free economy that we can to uh, generate that kind of revenue is really very important. Um, but I think I'd also say that um, the private sector works best when there is competition. Um, I think as Conservatives, we probably broadly all agree on that. Um, and it tends not to work so well when certain companies um, expect to be given certain contracts and uh, perhaps where the government decides not to bother with a competitive process and just pick um, a winner itself. So, um, and Defence is perhaps one of those areas, given the enormous long lead times and investment required, where um, it can be harder to do that. Um, but I think that need for competition is something the government needs to be very careful not to forget, uh, particularly on defence, because uh, we end up spending an awful lot of money and it's competition in the end that really holds the private sector to account. Chris, introducing those key conservative tenants as well, following up on what Carl and Will have been talking about. So brilliant. Thank you so much. Um, I can see that it's um, uh, 13.14. So unfortunately, um, that draws this meeting to a close. Um, I'd like to thank all of the panellists for um, both joining me and also, of course, for their submissions, which um, I know that uh, there'll be uh, MPs and members of the audience who are looking forward to reading uh, when the pamphlet comes out in April. Um, that's really it from me, apart from saying if you're interested in CF Armed Forces, 
um, please uh, do have a look at our website, www.cfarmforces.org. And we look forward to seeing some of you again soon. Thank you so much. We hope you enjoyed this month's episode of the CF Armed Forces podcast and you join us again for next month's.